Welcome to the pot. Oh, fuck it. Hi, this is the Bad Vibes Club podcast. It's Matt. This is the second of three podcasts with Andrea Frankie. In this podcast, we talk about The Idiot by Elif Bautman, which is a wonderful novel and you should go and read it immediately. If you haven't heard the last podcast where we talk about Chinese sci-fi, you should go back and listen to that. And the next podcast will be out in a week or so and it will be the final conversation with Andrea and we'll be talking about uh, post-truth and paranoid reading. Okay, enjoy. Okay, so we're reading Elif Batman's The Idiot today. Why are, we, why are we reading that? So I've been thinking about it because I've never felt more defensive about cultural object before i i wrote all my notes were like defensive justifications why did i decide to read it why did i continue reading it why did i try to convince people and i was trying to pinpoint why i feel so awkward about this and i think when i started reading and we can go through my list of defense points why i started (laughs) reading it um i read the first like 10 or 15 pages and i I just felt so stupid. And I was like, why am I reading this like chick lit weird thing about this 19 year old girl going through college and having crushes and doing all this stuff. And I felt so, um, I judged myself. And then I kept going and I think it's actually an amazing literary novel. And it's like, I don't think it's, um, I think there are lots of interesting stuff about it, but I think it kind of stayed with me how suspicious I was to read something that had that type of protagonist and that type of voice and take it seriously. And I think it got to me because she's really smart and I think she's taking a a stand in like making those decisions. But I sort of do the same thing in my work, not as smartest and maybe like not, um, maybe I don't feel that much in control, but I, I have the same, I feel like a lot of people have the same reaction to my work that goes around ideas of like motherhood and reproduction and stuff. So I do mm. these things where I'll be in a place and I'm talking about piracy project and I have like this um, very uh, varied group of people listen to it. And then I, for some reason, move to talk about like reproduction and childcare and like 90% of the men will get up and leave <laughs> <laughs> with absolutely like no guilt or whatever. Because They're just the, like, this is clearly not for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because the piracy project is this project where you've been looking at Forms of book piracy mostly, right? Yeah, so we talk about like copyright and and authorship. Yeah, uh, and it's really funny because to me, the two projects, like or another projects that I do, are are quite similar. Like I do them in the same way, and to me, like the philosophical questions, the political questions, are exactly the same. Yeah, but clearly, like one theme is considered universal and appropriate as an art yeah. subject, and everybody's included, and the other one is not. The other one is like very specific. Yeah. Problem that women have. And they have yeah, to. yeah. So let's let's, um, let's just uh, talk about the story. What am I trying to say? The like storyline of the idiot. So the the idiot is a um, is a bildung romance. So it's yeah. like a um, it's this coming to age story of this girl who um, is from this migrant family. So it's like a she's Turkish American uh, first generation who goes to Harvard, which is you know an incredible 
university to study comparative literature when she's 19 and is covering the first year of university. So she's like, Celine is my new idol. I completely identified her. That's she's amazing, like super yeah. nerdy. So character. she goes, she's a protagonist and she kind of like, she's bumping into all these theories and she's taking all these different classes. So every time in the book, you get a tiny bit of like, she's reading Noam Chomsky or she's reading yeah. um, Kierkegaard. And she's like, getting these tiny bits of pieces from this stuff and from her everyday life and from the people that she's meeting and trying to understand her place in the world. And in a, in a way that is so, I, I think is really interesting and radical because she's talking a lot about, she gets into this idea or like she's interested in this idea about the aesthetic life and the ethic life uh, in the book yeah. and, and how, what does it mean to be a woman and make those choices? And she's constantly, she's really aware through all the books saying like, I don't want to have, you know, this idea of like having a romance and having children and uh, that's going to happen is like, which would be the ethic idea for women. And she has like friends and she has like this parallel story that goes through the book, um, kind of sell it to women. And she's all the time comparing herself to that. And then on the other hand, there's this aesthetic life which she also says was the place for women in that if women are usually kind of the object of yeah. desire for like the yeah, subjects yeah. that have the aesthetic life. So she also doesn't want to have that. And she's a bit like, what the fuck is my position in the world? So Selen is the character and then Elif Batman is the author. And it's, it's not autobiographical, but it's like something like a kind of fictionalized version of herself as the character or something. But she said that, um, I'm going to get this wrong, maybe you can correct me, but she wrote this novel like not that long after she'd been in college. So she wrote it in maybe her mid-twenties. And then she did lots of other writing. And, and it was never published, sorry. And then she came back to the manuscript and kind of reworked it. Is that right? Yeah, so there's a, there's a step before that. And okay, that's sorry. that's what I... And I, I, I swear I heard this and I could not find it. I think I heard it in a podcast, uh, in an interview. But um, And that's why I decided to read the novel because I'm quite interested in autobiography and the kind of whole trend in autofiction. Um, and what she said is she wrote this as a diary while this was, ha like, she wrote a diary about her first year in Harvard because she went to Harvard and she studied comparative literature. And then when she was 23, she wrote this novel, which she said was really bad. And then when she, yeah, in her mid-30s, she she's writing another novel, which she hasn't published yet. And as she was writing, she realized that Celine was sort of this character, so she went back and rewrote. So it's really interesting because oh, now yeah. she's writing the novel, which is the continuation of this novel, which she wrote in between the two versions of the novel. Oh, okay, amazing. Uh, right, yeah. So I just thought it was a really weird way of constructing these stories together. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think, it should, I think to me, and again, I couldn't double check it, but it makes total sense that there is a diary for this book. Yeah. Because the level of like detail that they're so pointless but they're also completely perfect for what they are it's just they make so much sense yeah. but I was just finding it really hard it just captured a certain type of feeling that you have when you're 19 and you're encountering all this stuff my feeling of reading the book is so wrapped up in my assumptions not assum maybe assumptions but like my kind of uh, hypotheses about how she has written the book because there's so much like what's the word she's so the narrator is so self-aware, but also she is so like young and an and, and idiot. Like the title of the book is The Idiot. And, and that's kind of like the main character is meant to be like necessarily an idiot because she's 19. Like how everyone's an idiot at 19. And there's really amazing moments where she's just got this massive amount of self-awareness about 
how she doesn't have any opinions. Do you remember that bit? I love that. That's one of my favourite things. She's like, hang on, I'll find the note because it's really good. She's talking about her friend Svetlana, who is, um, has like kind of has it together or something. Yeah, and she, uh, Svetlana wants to live the ethical life. They have like this discussion, I think, three or four times in the book because she's the first person who tells Celine, you want to live an aesthetic life while I want to live an ethical life. Ethical life, which for Svetlana means to have, you know, find a good relationship with like a, like a nice partner and, mm. and stuff. And, um, so the quote is, it was a mystery to me how Svetlana generated so many opinions. Any piece of information seemed to produce an opinion on contact. Meanwhile, I went from class to class, read hundreds, thousands of pages of the distilled ideas of the great things of human history, and nothing happened. <laughs> which is like <laughs> such a good description of like, when you first get to uni isn't it like you're taking all this stuff on board and you're still a fucking moron like you still like can't do anything right there's all these things about clothing at the start of the book where she arrives in boston and like her coat is stolen because her flatmate leaves the door open and then she buys this like big massive shapeless uh overcoat and just wears it throughout the the rest of the book in like different inappropriate situations in which people are drawn to comment on how like horrible the coat is it's really good i really like it but there's also this 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 disconnect. Um, you can just tell that there's also a lot of gentleness between the Elif Bautman writing it and writing about the character. So she's like, she's not blaming Celine or the character for like, she's just like looking back with quite affection on like, I guess the freedom that that kind of state gives you. Or I don't know what. The but I think I think there's a lot of like affection from Bautman, like that. On, uh, although Celine comes really, she's she's like debating all these options. She's still taking these stands that are quite, I don't know if courageous is the word in a sense, but she, she does these things like, I remember there's this moment when she's like walking with Svetlana and then this guy from one of her classes comes and say hi to her and Celine doesn't reply and the guy just walks with her for like four minutes and then he leaves and Svetlana says like why didn't you say anything and and Celine says I couldn't think of anything to say and, and then Svetlana was like well you it's because you obsessed with you you think you need to say something intelligent or smart or make sense and and Celine is like yeah like why wouldn't I say something if I don't and I think the opinion thing is the same there's like mm. this this Celine spends all the book kind of like feeling that the, she knows all there's all these things are expected of her mm. and that's what I think is really interesting as a coming of age because a coming of age romance uh, novel in theory is like how someone learns how to be part of society and Celine just spends the whole book saying like <laughs> nah doing it really well I don't well. think so <laughs> yeah. she's like I don't, I don't know how can I be part of society and yeah. I think it's just really exciting to have a female character. Literary novels are not plot-driven, so this is a spoiler, but she goes to the end of the novel and she's still not part of society. Like, she's not, you know, there's not, like, a happy ending. It's just life goes on. And there's no, there's also no, like, I don't think there's, like, a life change. She's not a transformed character that now she has opinions because she has learned all this stuff. She's, like, understanding something much more basic about being in well, I think world. that's, for me, that's, I mean, it's literary novel I say so it's not plot driven but I think that's also why it falls under the category of also fiction even though it's a bit different because you're meant to feel like it's been a much more accurate portrayal of change or at least I that's how I that's what I like about fiction that is kind of autobiographical or 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 based on 
a closeness to life. I think Batman has spoken about is this a novel not a novel and she's not that she's not interested in that question but I had this expectation especially when she goes to in the trip that something is going to happen yeah and it's quite interesting that the texture of the trip is very similar to the texture of the university I, did you listen to the long form yeah interview so in that interview she actually comes back around on that question and says that she is really interested in the idea of fiction and non-fiction and that there is a difference she says like this is a no- the, the idiot is a novel no, it's just because there are two different questions. Like one is a fiction and fiction, and the other one is the novel as a format. Oh, a I see. Form. Sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because I think she, when she does the pod- so this is a podcast that we listened a few weeks ago, which is really good. The long rate uh, podcast, and long form, long form. Sorry, and she's talking about she's reading while she's doing the podcast. She's in the middle of reading, I think, Eduardo Galeano's which is this uh, Latin American theorist who writes about colonialism. And, and Galeano, I, I, have, I haven't read this Galeano's book. He's talking about how the novel is like this colonial form and what does that mean in terms of what the novel is. And I think she's talking about that she maybe like unconsciously is not following many of the rules of what a novel is and that people have like asked her, is it a novel? Is this a... Which I think is a, is a question that... People would do to like a lot of autofiction. Like I think you could definitely do that to Nasgard, who I've heard said he thinks the six books are one novel, like the novel is right. the six books of my struggle, or like Rachel Cusk, which I don't even know if she calls that. She yeah. calls them novels, but part of the interesting interplay between character and writer in the idiot is that the character wouldn't exist if the writer hadn't been close enough to the character to be bullheaded and adolescent and naive enough to have written a diary while she was at university and then to at the end of that university in even in the novel that thing of like her realizing that this like awkwardness or idiocy or whatever you want to call it of herself is actually like an advantage or a tool that she can use because of the way the form is usually used i was when she went in the trip i was like we're doomed now oh i see because now the guy is there she's there they're together for like a month and then she just goes to do her own stuff (laughs) which i think is amazing but she does the same kind of stuff she like sits in the car or like just doesn't turn up and meet him even though they've arranged to meet or whatever (laughs) (laughs) and i just yeah and and again like and and i just like i started rereading it for the podcast and i i didn't realize that the first time but there's this incredible um, story that Batman puts in the book, which is this romance that they have to read for the Russian uh, lesson. Yeah, so she's she's learning Russian and they give her like a basic text which only uses the grammar that they've learned up until now. And so each... There's not even chaps in this book, but like every now and again you get like a new portion of this story. And, and this is like a romance between... I, I don't remember the name. A graduate student and another graduate and student. And then the the protagonist of the of this second story it's also called Ivan yes he is yeah yeah and, that's right but this is like a very traditional story and it's like not it's completely plot driven because it's for the class so it's basically this like drama where you know this woman is in love with Ivan she f- Ivan left she doesn't know why she follows him in the end um he has married someone else Oh, yeah. But then, because she has followed him, she met this other guy, and then she gets married. And then it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and she's really unsatisfied with that, isn't she? Celine. She, yeah, yeah, yeah. She and she spent the whole novel comparing it. But at the same time, she, quite a few times in the book, compares her feelings to her Ivan, mm. to the feelings. Um, 
from this other plot-driven story. And and what I think is interesting is that rereading the book, she totally makes herself fall in love with the real event. With the real event. Because she's like reading these love stories and she's like, that's what you do when you're in college. That's what you do in life. You yeah. need to find these people and fall in love. So she finds this guy and she falls in love and he sort of becomes the engine of a lot of her decisions. But he's always an engine in this really sideways, which I think <laughs> is really interesting. So like she does the trip because of him, because he's going to be there for a month. Yes, that's right, isn't and it? And yeah. he, he cannot be with her because he has a girlfriend, but he's always, you know... He's a very confusing character. She's always like flirting with her and telling her that actually he loves her, but he can't be with her. So she goes to the to this industry because of him. But then she just like uses that as a reason to do other stuff because she's not choosing between the ethical life and the aesthetic life. She's choosing something in between. She's choosing something where like I can still have these relations and desires and love and other people, but I can still also enjoy just pleasure and present and yeah. all these other feelings and kind of navigate on my own and I don't have to give up anything. Which I think for a 19-year-old woman is pretty awesome to... to yeah, and to I wonder whether that's that's the interesting... I mean, that's one of the many interesting things about that, but about this book, but like, it is, like, it's pretty standard. It, like, you know, Canal Scarred is just just because you mentioned him like it's pretty standard to get these like hopeless intelligent but confused awkward males as like the beginning of the story and as like a yeah like young man to like be identifying with them quite strongly and yeah I guess maybe this is just like the first thing of or the first really good thing that I've read in which that that person is a woman and what that means to be that like awkward beta super intelligent young person is totally different as a woman, isn't it? It's like a different set of obstructions and a, a different set of um, norms that are like being kind of pushed away. Yeah, I was really interested about that because I think you were the first person I sent when I was when I really got into the book and I, I sent you a text and I was like, you should read this. This is actually amazing. And then I went to meet you and I already had this defensive thing where it's just like, Matt's going to tell me why did you tell me to yeah, read this okay. book? And I was really prepared to fight for it. And then... Uh, I imagine you were like, I'm really enjoying this. Yeah, of course. <laughs> this is really yeah. good. Uh, this is, just to be clear, like, this is exactly the kind of book that I love. Like, to a T. Well, I'm just used to thinking that, well, men don't read books about protagonists like that. Because maybe that's the thing that I was projecting in my head. That I shouldn't read books. Like, the, I just, I was curious because I was so self-aware that this book was, protagonist was a 19-year-old woman. Yeah. And that, that was so different because we have read Nazgar together. We yeah. have read Rachel Cuss together. We, we have read like quite a lot of things together, but they have always been protagonists that, I don't know, are kind of like serious. Well, I think I think Rachel Cusk is a bit different. Well, maybe we can talk about her in another podcast, but Rachel Cusk's writing is like brutal. She's like brilliant, but very different. Like Nazgard, I think is similar in the sense that he presents like his younger self as like ho absolutely hopeless. And yet we know that he then has success some or some kind of like life that is meaningful later on or even that idiocy of himself as young man is like a meaningful idiocy and yeah i guess maybe this is just yeah maybe it's just like cringy to be like maybe you like identified in a more literal way with this character where you're like oh i i literally was a 19 year old woman at one point whereas when you're reading nowscard you're like oh isn't it interesting this idea of like a novel well i don't know like maybe it's more hypothetical you're identification with the character yeah I don't know it's funny I just um, 
it felt like there was a lot of risk involved in recommending this book to people. Yeah, interesting. So what are your other defenses against? When I was doing my first MA in Brazil, I did research on self-portraiture and um, autobiographical works in art. And I've always been really interested, not in the stuff like, because I would say that and people will say, you probably love Rembrandt and maybe Frida Kahlo. And I'd be like, it's not that, it's more like Nan Golding. And, and, and these people that kind of using everyday life and mm. they recognizing that it's part of the work. And I read lots of stuff about this idea of the autobiographical pact, which is the idea that it's not about fiction and not fiction, but it's about reading something where the author is making sort of a pact of truth to you. And I think that was something that maybe I'm trying to articulate now because of the stuff I'm, I'm doing on, on facts and truth. But it's like the, the idea that a pact autobiographical uh, biographical is that when you when you read a book that has this kind of relation to life that is made quite clear for you, like Batman makes that clear, Nasgard makes that clear, Cusk makes that clear. It's not like you read them and you think, oh, maybe this is mm. referring to them. It's like they, this this is like part of the whole culture around the book. Then you kind of establish this different way of reading it because you sort of uh, allow yourself to believe that there's a connection to reality and kind of the author takes the stand of like convincing you that there's a connection to reality and there's something there's something there that I cannot put my finger on but I find really I find really interesting um I just remember that the first thing I actually read from Batman was this she writes for the New Yorker um, and she wrote this essay about a book that I really like called A Little Life by Hanya Yanagihara and then she wrote it like two years, like the book was a massive success a few years ago. And um, it's a weird book, it's also a very weird book. And she wrote it two years afterwards or something, which was really funny. And she started by saying like, oh yeah, I know this is a bit stupid because everybody has read the book by now. <laughs> but actually, because the, the book has this extremely like melodramatic and it like is about, you know, in, in a way, it's about this life of these really affluent people. It's like so wrong in so many levels that she was like, I, all my friends keep telling me you have to read this book. And she would start and be like, I can't. I can't read this book. <laughs> <laughs> and then I felt, oh, that's okay, because I felt like that about your Probably book as well. Yeah. <laughs> I think I wrote this. Um, Celine is always fascinating about how people know things, yeah. how they make decisions, how they hold opinions. And know in terms of like how it's not like, um, it's not like an epistemology question. It's not like she. It's not like she's fascinated. How do like I don't know doctors make uh, decisions? But it's about how can people know they know something. Yeah. She's fascinated about like, and it's so obscure to her. And I think it got to the end of the novel, and she still doesn't know it. And she's like, yeah, how does all these other people exist in the world, and like think they assume they know or like come to this enlightenment where they feel i know i know stuff uh but that is in a way that is like a classic although it's an unspoken position to take in a lot of novels a lot of protagonists are this kind of like soundboard for, especially comic novels they're like a sounding board for other people's like humorously written received opinions that are meaningless do you know what i mean and that and that does happen in this novel although there are i think what's interesting about it is she voices that like thing and it's not like oh that's a stupid opinion it's just like wow it's so crazy that they've decided that not only they know something but they know it enough to express it out loud 
but that almost like gives it too much moral judgment. To her, it's like just really fascinating that like people have decided to express things. Yeah, but also not only to express, but to like decide. She just lets things happen to her. So yeah. like she goes on a trip because the trip happens. And then this other person says, you should go and do this. And then she just, when she's, when she's uh, um, on her trip, she's staying with these families and these families are just taking her to do things. And she's just, <laughs> she's just floating and you don't really understand why is she, she doesn't, she doesn't like a lot of these people or she doesn't necessarily feel she wants to do them, but she also doesn't know when to do them. The only time she gets a day off, she just spends the whole, she's in the middle of Paris and she spends the whole day just like, eating cookies and reading a, like Russian novels or something like without leaving the house. Maybe that's what I was trying to get with, with earlier. Like the character doesn't express that explicitly, but we know because if you know anything about the writing of this novel, then you know like that the narrator, even at the time, must have was recording things because she thought they were worthwhile, which is a form of like adolescence that I think a certain kind of artists need to maintain that adolescence throughout their life in the sense that I believe that my life, no matter how banal, is like worth recording in some way. Just, I'm, I'm thinking because I'm, I'm really into out of fiction, but I'm also really into mumblecore, which I think is a very similar <laughs> thing. <laughs> You're laughing, but mumblecore. Define just like for our listeners, define mumblecore. So mumblecore, um, it's mainly an American type of film, independent film in the early noughties, I would say. There are films that were done by film students, just with like cameras, super cheap. Usually they will be done like in a weekend or in a week. And the actors and the director, it's just a group of friends that kind of write the script together. And they're called mumblecore because people just mumble through the whole film. So they just, they're just lots of people talking and not a lot happen. And it's usually about like really tiny things. So it would be like a group of friends or a party and then a friend sort of try to kids another friend. There's never like big actions. There's like tiny things. And it would just follow, it might be follow the people over the weekend seeing like how this tiny bit of tension that might have slightly changed the way the group of people relate to each other affects their relationship. But it's like, it's just every day. So it would be like people cooking and then they kind of spend time together and then they go to a bar and then the film ends. And like nothing, usually nothing changes. And a lot of people dislike them because they say they feel like watching films made by MA students, which I, I think is a great critique. Why wouldn't you want to watch films made by MA students? Those are like amazing films that have lots of weird uh, stuff on them. And a lot of these directors now are becoming like Hollywood directors and Greta Gerwin, for example, which I started um, Mumbaco Films now, is also a director. She directed Lady Bird. Yeah. Which was nominated for an Oscar. Which is not a mumblecore film. It's no, very, it's not. It's very no. plot-driven. It's um, it's exactly what a mumblecore film would be if you were given loads of money and forced to give it a plot, I think. Yeah, that is sad. Yeah, it's sad. To me, there might be some of the most interesting films about like, female sexuality because women do amazing things in mumblecore yeah. films and they, because they are writing their own parts. So... Um, and you get like well, older women. They just do women. quite realistic things, don't they? Rather than appearing as yet yeah, objects of desire. Yeah, yeah. The one, I, the one I'm thinking of is Hannah Takes the Stairs. Yes. Hannah's the main character. Yes. And she's like, and is that Greta Girl? Yeah. And she co-wrote it. She yeah. co-wrote. And like, and she's just a bit of a dickhead. Like she's throughout a total the total dickhead. She's like, she just keeps like turning up at people's houses and like ruining their day, basically. It's really funny. And like, she, so in Hannah Takes the Stairs, she. Um, Greta Gerwin's character goes through like four boyfriends and uh, or, no three boyfriends and they're all really important Mumblecore directors 
which is also really funny because all the directors are actors. Yeah, sure. So they were also, this is a group of 30 people, so they're all like in everybody's uh, films. And she will fall in love with someone and it's, a, you know, she, like all these little things she does to kind of like seduce him or like paying attention and thinking, oh my God, this person is, this guy is like so amazing and he's so interesting. And then, very quickly after like spending some real time with that person, she's like, oh my God, this person is such a pain. <laughs> and then while she's with that person, she starts flirting with someone else and then she finds, and then, and so she's like, she's like um, moving from one boyfriend to the other in a way that is also not, it's not destructive. It's just how life is. It's not yeah. like this horrible woman who goes and like seduces and ruins people's lives and move on. It's like, that's how desire works. You want to be with someone and then, you sort of like change your mind and you want to be with someone else and that person moves on. I don't know. It's like... What you were saying about the critique of Mumblecore would apply to a lot of autofiction as well, which is like, it's essentially you're reading about privilege because to have published a novel about your bullshit, like young... I mean, it particularly applies some, to this novel, The Idiot, and also to Canalsgaard, right? It's like people's dismissal of it is like, you're just a published author who's just been offered the chance to publish any old shit. And the same with Mumblecore is like, you just believe that your like bullshit privilege life is like worth recording and documenting. And I am like taking a stand against that. Yeah. And I think, I think that critique is always problematic because I think, I think that use of privilege is problematic to use privilege, not a, because that's a calling out use of privilege okay. when you're not, when you're not pointing to privilege in a way that kind of like challenges any structure or like really questions your position, like those critiques, you know, to say like Mumblecore are done by privileged people is, or it's just true. This, <laughs> it's just, it's just truth. It's just truth, but it's, it's um, how can I say? It's, it's a fact. Yeah. Mom, mo I have to say, I don't think, I, I think all the Mumblecore films I've seen, for example, are like white people. Yeah, sure. For example. Yeah, yeah. But there's an amazing Mumblecore film, I don't remember the name, where uh, the protagonist, is a girl who's in a wheelchair and it's an amazing film because she's just a friend and she's a co-writer and like the wheelchair is just a thing like it's not a film about disability yeah and i remember watching that i think like wow i never watch actually something like that and um i read lots of different stuff and i watch lots of different stuff and i'm quite aware and i make an i make an extra effort because these things can be hard to access to watch a lot of black cinema, to watch a lot of queer cinema, to see the indie stuff that is happening on the other side, and to read novels that are written by lots of different people. And sometimes I feel the people that do the call of privilege actually don't do the work and the watch the <laughs> they're not watching any of that stuff. They're not like supporting any yeah, of the yeah, other yeah. scenes. They're just saying, look, I can see this. And it's but like, we can well, all see it. We'll con we can all see it, but what's your point? Yeah, and I think um, what's what's interesting, like recently I decided to, well, I didn't really decide to, I just really wanted to read some, um, oh shit, I can't remember the guys, I can't remember the fucking name, sorry, I'll have to Google this, because otherwise. Sellout. Yeah, I decided to read The Sellout by Paul Beatty and then read White Boy Shuffle as well. He's a, he's a black American writer and he's very much like writing from a perspective that it's like a very unliberal book, unpolitically correct and like doesn't really go out of its way to like appease any kind of liberal sensibilities for the white readership. Although I'm sure there are many white readers and I was one of them. And what I realized, and this is so fucking obvious, but like, oh right, this is just the sort of literary fiction that I like anyway. By reading his fiction, I was doing nothing to like challenge any kind of 
structure that stops different voices being heard. Do you know what I mean? Because he was writing in a way that was like just exactly the sort of writing that I already like. But I, th- but I do think that makes something. That I, what does I do it think mean? that it changes things in terms of race. Just because when you think about literary novelist writer, you think of a white man. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and yeah, just yeah, yeah. the fact that we can slowly start like... <laughs> shifting that yeah. and maybe it will be a question mark at some point and you'd be like oh I cannot I don't know what you know when I think about this and I make a choice of what to read that I don't have these assumptions that you know this sort of person yeah. write this sort of thing or I was just talking to a student yesterday who is trans and he was saying it's really hard because as an artist you expect to do things about being trans and you don't necessarily want to do this like I'm Latin America, or, or and and I'm a mother and I'm a woman and I do stuff that has. It's not that I can leave that identity behind, but I also do stuff that doesn't have to talk about these things. You know what I mean? And I want to be when I talk about getting into a fight with you about object or ontology, we're fighting as like equals, and you're not gonna be like, oh. Andrew can only understand anthology through race or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Although I probably will I have a is. fight. <laughs> but but it, but it's, it's tricky, isn't it? Because like on, on the one hand, like I'm, th- I'm thinking about like mine and your conversations. On the one hand, like we, I don't think these are actually in opposition. So we talk as equals, obviously, and maybe sometimes you a little bit higher than me. <laughs> but, <laughs> but also on the other hand, like the way that you will, say something like yeah like when we're talking about ontology because you were kind of uninterested in ontology for a long time but then the way you became interested in it was like through race and a kind of queer phenomenology and then like entered into the discussions of ontology which is like not the way that I got into it but is now the way that I'm really interested in do you know what I mean so it's quite it's it's tricky because when you say like you, you shouldn't be expected to present your identity as part of your creative output I think that's true but I also just think like partly it's it's only because like people still believe that whatever the exa- the obvious example like young white male middle class artists aren't presenting their young white male middle classness through the work but they are like we always are like and we and the only difference is whether you're going to explicitly recognize that which you shouldn't be forced to do and that's I guess that's the point about your students that they shouldn't be constantly forced to be like by the way this is like informed by my experience as a, as a trans person because you just shouldn't be made to like reveal yourself as the author of a work in any particular way unless you want to do that. I think I think you're completely right in, in everything you said. And I think maybe I phrased this wrong. I think it's not that it's, it's not that I can exit that identity or that even one exit that identity. It's more that you get categorized. So if I I think for quite a lot of people or institutions, if I ever wanted to do something about ontology, it will have to be in a Latin American studies department, yeah. for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's about being excluded excluded from like these conversations. So so to think, for example, that you can do a novel being of, you know, gender and gender race and you're not gonna go to like feminist you know, only to like feminist bookshops or like to, you know, black publishers. You can have that identity. I mean you can't you can have it's your identity or like you are who you are and then you write from that position but that you're not excluded then to a niche of like um where people do things for queer people or like yeah. you know and i think it's getting better but it is it is quite hard i'm always, I'm, I'm still in, impressed how hard it is a lot of times to access certain types of culture that are produced by certain the types classic of example is like um eleanor ferrante's books right like these like four 
Neapolitan novels that were probably the biggest literary smash for years and years and years. But the front covers of all of the books are like chiclet. Even though the publisher already knew by the time they were publishing them that they were like huge, going to be huge literary smashes and they could have just put them in a fucking blank cover and they would have sold because they weren't selling on the basis of their cover. They were selling on the basis of um, the hu- like huge amounts of reviews and bestsellers lists in the New York Times, blah, blah, blah. All the covers are like women half turned away or like little girls on... The- they just look like holiday romance books, don't they? It's yeah. absolutely crazy. I don't know if this is pointless, but just because you brought Ferrante and I had a note about Ferrante, which, on my justifications about how, why, or like, <laughs> which was um, that when I w- we were reading Ferrante and Asgard at the same time, both of us, and I think we always had these discussions, or like I always had this argument that Nasgard, um, in Nasgard books, his protagonist, which is himself, is like constituted on its own like he's a subject who goes through the world and in Ferrante's novels and that's also in her novellas like the woman it doesn't matter how smart they are how successful they're always constituted by the men around them so they always need these kind of men who kind of like lock into them and it can be in opposition to them but it's always through their eyes and through their judgment that they understand themselves as full human beings and I think she does it perfectly well because I think that's also reflects a lot of women's experience in the world, I would say. Um, but uh, Celine's character, she's not constructed through men. Yeah, it's amazing. It's yeah, like yeah, really yeah. exciting. She's like not at all. And it's not like she, um, she doesn't like become queer in the novel or she's like, she's, she's attracted to men. Yeah. She's, um, you know, has these um, feelings, but she doesn't, she has her own life and, 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 and these relationships just come and go, just as maybe Nasgard's book do for for yeah. him in a sense. And I thought that was a really different way of constructing female subjectivity that again got me really excited. Even though that that was not my experience being a nineteen year old, I was like, I wish I was like that when I was a nineteen year old. <laughs> like every teenage girl should read this book. <laughs> Thanks so much to Andrea. Thanks for listening. Um, The next podcast with Andrea will be our last and then we'll have some more guests for you. Okay, cheers.